This is Blood and Firewater, a true crime comedy discussion type podcast. We shoot tequila and chase it with a case of murder. Just as a disclaimer, this podcast contains mature content not suitable for all ages. So listener discretion is advised. Oh, you gave me another shot. You took our you already no, took a shot? I didn't. Oh. Yeah. I did not. Alright, so for what was it, episode five? This is episode five. Oh, How man. exciting. We're getting up there. We're All like the way up. a hundred away from a hundred and five. We're popping. So like I feel like the first the first hundred episodes are the hardest. And then like after a hundred and five, you're like this is just something I do now. Yeah, a hundred is a lot. I that it is it's oddly terrifying because I was like, wait, he just went five to a hundred and five. Like, wait, whoa. it's a weird number. I get it. It's fun. All right. So for today's case, we are drinking. Mm-mm. Oh shit! No, I turned the bottle around. Where? Where is it? It's over there. It's... I was supposed to be able to see the bottle. Over where? Oh, you had it on like a display or something. You you want to take a picture of that later? Instagram. I wouldn't. It's not that great. Yeah. So for today's case, we're drinking Old Camp Peach and Pecan, Pecan or Pecan. Pecan? Which one is it? Oh, let's argue. I say Pecan. Pecan. It just sounds more natural to me. Sounds French. It sounds uh-huh. <laughs> oh no no yeah like no. Um. So old camp peach and pecan, <laughs> peach and pecan whiskey. It's it's got a lot going on. We have a shot here and a couple beers, but I don't want that pecan shit. In so my I guess we'll we'll um bro. I guess we'll go ahead and cheers it right. and and try it out. Mm. It tastes like wood. <laughs> like I'd imagine, like if I. It tastes like a. As if like a like some kind of. It tastes like a better fireball. Yeah, I was gonna say like it tastes like. Because fireball is terrible, but that's not terrible. But it tastes like fireball. It tastes like okay. I know what I was gonna say. It tastes like a really bad breakfast. <laughs> like, like I was really trying burnt to... French toast. Really bad. It's like you aren't at home eating the breakfast that you would cook. You're I can't taste the else's. peach though. The peach is good. That's where the and then the there's bad... like burnt sandalwood. Yeah, that's aftertaste. where the bad kicks in. That peach. It's when you start breathing. When once that oxygen like hits that flavor, and you're like, your smell, <laughs> your the your sense of smell is stronger than your sense of taste. No shade. We are not the, this. No, we I, are glad. I'll tell to be. you when it's terrible. Aww. It's not terrible. <laughs> no shit. I wouldn't don't. drink it again. I definitely wouldn't pay for it. Again. Right? No. If somebody had it, now, like if I if I'm in the liquor store, I'm probably not going to drink that. No. It, it it's not that bad. Now 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 that that's out of the way, we'll go into tonight's case or today's tonight's whatever your evening wh- whatever time of day good evening that you're listening to this. Your today's, my tonight's case, 
takes place on November 22nd, 1965 in a small suburb of Aiea in Honolulu, Hawaii. This is where a young mother, Maggie Young, took the lives of her five children. We don't know if Maggie was short for something else, maybe just a nickname, but we're going to go with Maggie because that's, that's what we got. So do Hawaiians celebrate Thanksgiving? Well, this is a holiday case to me because it being so close to Thanksgiving, but by Hawaiians' deep-rooted history and being like an Asian culture, Thanksgiving by mainland standards aren't as widely celebrated there. Okay. They actually have their own day of thanks with no credit given to the Puritans. Don't get me started about the Puritans. I was just going to tell you, you remember how I told you I was going to look exactly what Puritans were? I kind of need you to re-explain. Don't get me started. I mean... They celebrated their own thing for the entire season, honoring the god Lono, who is associated with fertility, agriculture, rainfall, music, and peace. That sounds like one hell of a Thanksgiving to me. It sounds way better than the Thanksgiving we got. Right, I mean. Regardless, if you're looking for turkey and stuffing, you can still find it in Hawaii, but you won't find your grandma's macaroni and cheese. There's no turkeys in Hawaii. So, like, I wonder what they have to go through to, like, fucking get a turkey. I mean, I don't... What is Thanksgiving without a turkey? And you don't see turkeys. It's like having a goblin around Hawaii. I mean, what's what's the traditional dinner for Christmas? If a the turkey, same shit is for Thanksgiving. That's why. That's why we're again? making two broccoli casseroles because they're both. Okay. I feel like there's. I feel like, given the region for a turkey, it's probably overpopulated. What kind so, of meat do you eat around Christmas? Ham. And what kind of meat do you eat around Thanksgiving? Ham. Turkey. Well, yeah, I don't even eat ham, so I can't even agree with you. Like, you heard the Christmas ham, just like you heard the Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah. So. Okay. I mean, why do you keep putting things like that? Like, it sounds so right. And I've heard it somewhere else. Right. So. Maggie and James Young live with their five young children, northwest area of the main city of Honolulu. The family consisted of four daughters, Jessica, eight months, Jeanette, two, <laughs> Judith, three, and Janice, five, and her only son, James Frank Jr., who was eight. Bro, she was pregnant for like five years. That's a I, lot of pregnancies. I, yeah, I mean, after the third kid, I was like, you're still going? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of them. Mm-mm. Nine months. I didn't even do nine months. <laughs> like... Maggie was born in 1927. And very little is reported about her, and very little is known about her personal life. Uh, Maggie was very nice, and her children were very well behaved, but after the birth of her youngest child, a neighbor named Jessica began to see changes in Maggie's behavior. Like, okay, so outside of a, let's say you live in Hawaii, all right, you like everybody that lives where you live probably goes to the same grocery store, probably goes to the same beaches, this, that, and the other. All right? All right. So, I'd imagine, like, your name, like, she probably knew her, uh, like, a lot more, but, like, given so only so much about this case, because, like, I've never heard of this, like, 
this is my first time. And I was like, this yeah. is fucking crazy. Um, according to her husband, <laughs> Maggie was sent to mental institutions several times the last few months leading up to the murders. According to her husband, James, Maggie was sent to mental institutions several times the last few months leading up to the murders. There's a red flag. Well, yeah. I mean... I'm not going to give you five kids and be like, I think you're crazy, but... <laughs> I know. There's diapers in here. Yeah, and I got this job where I got to be gone, gone. James would describe Maggie's behavior after all the children had been born as a very slow downslope into signs of depression. She had an erratic sleep schedule. She stopped taking care of herself, and after months of deterioration, Maggie was no longer able to take care of her younger children. That literally sounds like signs of postpartum. I mean, don't ask me. I've only had twins once in my life, but that sounds like the bitch just went downwards after that last kid. Like, I can't do this no more. <laughs> I'm done. I'm done. I, I'm, I'm giving you all the signs here. Here. Like, here. here. Do you need it to be more than several? Do you want this to be all the time? <laughs> like, Picking me up like you dropping me off at school, but it's a, a mental institution. Maggie left the care for her younger children to her two older adult children she had from a previous marriage. Oh, so she had another husband, but he was just out of the picture. She had a whole nother man. Yeah, a, a, and two other kids. Well, I mean, the sixties were was a rough time. That's seven kids now. When they were left in the care of Maggie, James would come home from long missions in the Air Force to find children dirty and diapers full. How is neglect still occurring if the younger kids were in the care of the unnamed adult children? Like, they're changing the shit diapers. Well, okay, so let's, let's imagine that they weren't able... To be there all the time? To be there all the time. And James was gone days at a time. Like, two days goes by... A day goes by. 16 hours go by and you don't change a diaper. Yeah, I mean, he has to be relatively close. He can't be that far away for him. Like, I mean... This is the Air Force we're talking about. Well, I we're know, not but like he's... not talking about, dominoes or anything. He keeps coming back, though. He <laughs> He's stationed at the base. So, okay, wait. Is she... So, maybe she's not living on a base. It, it could a be a base. I, I, I did not. There was no information. Uh, like, the the only news about this is, like, a couple news articles and What you said hearsay. about 16 hours, though, is what you, like, made me think. Like, okay, maybe there's, there's house I'm, on I'm the base, but he's away that, doing all that practice and shit that he has to do for the Air Force. I'm saying 16 hours without changing a diaper. Yeah, that's still bad. That's what I'm saying, though. But he coming home like, bitch. Full diapers. Everybody. <laughs> These kids dirty. All like, of them. If anything, the young family was very religious. And throughout Maggie's descent into depression, she would have hallucinations and visions of a religious nature. For instance, one night, according to James, Maggie left the house for several hours to go marry Jesus. Oh. And then told James that the Virgin Mary was now his grandmother. Obviously, becoming clear to James that Maggie was unfit to care for the children once again, 
He attempted to have her committed for the safety of the family and for her own. The hospital pushed back and said that Maggie would have to commit herself. So I'm assuming this is a military hospital. Yes, because we only can assume that this is a military base. And from well, my a, perspective, a mili- there's a, lot, a lack of people. Like These people must be really busy not to be paying attention to Maggie. Well, a military-grade mental hospital probably has like super strict rules you know what i mean and they're in hawaii so the rules aren't really i'm not saying hawaii is like a different place but come on so with the help of the church and the family doctor maggie was convinced to receive any help that was offered after six weeks maggie was released from tripler army medical center back into the care of james and the hospital refused further on-site treatment stating that there was no more that they could do for her and any other improvement would have to come from the home she was released and treated as an outpatient i wonder how often this outpatient was checked on zero on monday november 22nd 1965 on the morning of the murders james was away on a mission i said mission <laughs> i heard myself saying <laughs> You go make me feel myself. On Monday, November 22nd in 1965, on the morning of the murders, James was away on a mission and neither of Maggie's eldest children were caring for her or the children. At 8 a.m., Maggie sent her son, James Jr., to school and then she wasted no time systematically drowning her other four children, starting with her eldest daughter, Janice, who was five, then Judith, three, Jeanette, two, and then ending with the youngest, Jessica, eight months old. Damn. What? <laughs> <sighs> On a Monday? Yeah. Everybody's busiest day of the week. She's just like, you know what? I got y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Filling the tub up. <laughs> After she finished, she walked to her son's school to bring him home. At 9.30, she drowned James Jr. too. Oh, my God. Um, so nobody, nobody thought that was fucking sketch. Well, I mean, your mama comes to pick you up from school. It doesn't mean that she's going to take you home and just drown you in the bathtub. What what time was school? <laughs> like In Hawaii? Yeah. Like because it, what 11, time did she pick whenever you Whenever you just kind of roll in. After what time? 9.30? <laughs> we talked about this. Well, yeah. She school dro- starts she, at 8. No, she, start, she dropped him off at 8. She literally picked him up in the middle of breakfast. I guess she walked back home because it's Hawaii. You know, who took him to school? Everybody just drives a surfboard. (laughs) Where they? If you if you if you don't have a car, you just surf down to the school. Okay, and then you dropped the kid off, then went back home, just surfed back on back on down, and then just started systematically. (laughs) (laughs) Started drowning. Where everybody at? What? What? Boy, let me tell you what's about to happen. <laughs> you I don't I don't know. Like I, I imagine okay, so all these other children, they're at home barefoot, just chilling. Cause they Yeah. Live... We're about to go uh, Mama, what are we about to do, Mom? Surf. <laughs> <laughs> you going to the other side. <laughs> that is fucking terrible. I see you <laughs> We're about to go surfing. For real, for real. I'm, I'm dead ass, though. This is just continuous red flags. Like, um, ma'am, why are you picking? School ain't even started. 
<laughs> you dropped your kid off already. School don't start till eleven thirty. It's eight. See, we knew something was wrong with you when you dropped them off because we looked at you crazy then, and then you looking crazy now. Where are you taking this little boy? Where are you taking him? So soon after the murders. Maggie called her friend Elaine Marshall, who lived in Honolulu, and asked her what the penalty was for the murder in the state of Hawaii. Um, I'm sorry. You said what? They put you on a boat. <laughs> hey. And they, like, just push what? it. I'd be like, I'm sorry. You said what? Like I, like I just said. That's a, You said even yourself when we went over this. What do you say? nothing you hang up the phone and, and uh, you call the cops <laughs> hey hey I don't... anybody ever called me and was like hey quick question just real quick i know it's early <laughs> but um i need to know mm. how, how how how's murder work here no <laughs> you call somebody for fucking directions you don't ask them what the fucking there's only the like penalty no. Murder. I looked up a map of Hawaii just for shits and giggles, and there's like three roads. Okay, there's Man, like one highway, three roads, this and gotta be a fucking... the rest of it is just like you know. Hey, Sand. what can I say? <laughs> hey, Moana. You just hear that all the time, Moana. After Davidson and Luna arrived and asked what was going on, Maggie admitted, "Quote: I killed my children. I drowned them." Unquote. Officers quickly discovered the children lying in two di- two separate beds inside of one of the bedrooms. She was arrested, obviously, well, yeah. and taken to the Honolulu City County Jail to await arraignment. But, but what's weird is, even though she admitted to the murder of all five of her children inside of the home, she was only charged with first degree of the oldest son uh, of the eldest the only son james what so remember earlier that year maggie was in the tripler army medical center for a previous mental breakdown well all of the other murder charges were eventually dropped due to the, her experience with mental illness court psychiatrists and prosecutors felt that it would be unfair to treat her as if she was basically in her right mind to stand trial at the end of the trial maggie young was only charged with drowning her son i'm guessing because of the fact that because of the act of walking to the school to retrieve him to drown him gave her premeditation even though it was clear that she murdered her other children she was immediately sent to the state hospital in kaneoe Early in the treatment, Maggie began to respond very well, but shortly after, when the magnitude of what she had done to her family began to sink in, it was debilitating for her and she began to relapse back into severe delusions. On July 25, 1966, while on pass, Maggie was on a uh, unsupervised walk along the hospital grounds. Stop. Wait. Why is she getting a pass to do anything? She was getting better. No... It's one of those, yay, it's Hawaii, right? Okay. No. It's, it's pretty as fuck. Okay. Maggie well, had... Tell, yeah, no, go ahead. You tell, want, okay. I, I want to know what Maggie did on that pass. Go ahead. Maggie it, hung herself in a chicken slaughter shack. Oh. 
Okay. So let's give this chicken slaughter shack. It's 1965. I yeah, get it. yeah. So you gotta, you know, you want some fried chicken, you need a chicken slaughter shack. I get uh, it. <laughs> I guess I that was like one of the jobs slaughters. on in the prison. It's just like, hey, you're on laundry, you're on dishes, you're in the chicken slaughter shack. Ah, that'd be fucked. That's how you know that you don't like, like bro. I've you don't been like in me? the chicken slaughter shack three days <laughs> in a row. I'm done with this shit. I am done slaughtering chickens at the mental hospital. <laughs> yeah, this is this is the prison. It this might is not a hospital. Okay, so well, at this mental hospital, being in the, the chicken shed probably isn't the worst thing. I feel like they could have put it somewhere else, maybe outside hey, of the mental hospital. <laughs> hey, Maggie, go get a chicken so we can fry it. There, there might have been just like a overpopulation of chickens, and like every every block you go is like well, that's Jake's pro- chicken you know slaughter shack. There you go, like, there you go, right there. Uh, so for Thanksgiving, we're gonna have a big ass chicken. They ate chicken, Rashad. No, you don't eat chicken on Thanksgiving. You don't, but they had hella chickens. It's like they somebody had showed up at KFC shits. on Thanksgiving. I'm like, you better get that shit out of my house. <laughs> get out of here. Get him out of here. All right, so let's let's. Maggie had hung herself from the rafters of a chicken slaughter shed. It's fine. Nurses would say that after the suicide, Maggie was getting better, but as she got better, the more realization of what she had done began to set in, and she was doomed from there. So, should have doctors allowed her to remain delusional, as to not agitate the delicate mental state of Maggie? Should the state be allowed to recognize an illness and treat based on what they think is necessary? Need I remind you that Andrea Yates still remains on suicide watch to this day. I was wondering if she knew about this woman or is this just history repeating itself over and over throughout all these untreated mothers? Like, do they have this dream? There's like this one just get a dream of drowning their children and they they, they do it because I I I can honestly say that I haven't thought about drowning Brielle and Kennedy. Okay. All right. Let's talk about it. I I haven't had that dream yet, so. Um, you said yet. I did. Okay. Don't no, quote it's, me it's, on it's that. Fun. You can quote me on that. Whatever. No, I wouldn't do that. Well, then don't quote me on it because I I don't think I'm gonna have that dream. There's I feel like my my subcon- my subconscious and all that good shit. My psyche. I think it's fine for now. It's fine. So James Young would later move away from Hawaii and remarry, but he didn't have any more children. Oh shit, I don't blame him. This case was soon forgotten until 2001 when Andrea Yates drowned her children in the same fashion as Maggie Young. Trina Shapiro, a reporter from the Honolulu Star, wrote an article about how similar the cases were and brought the old case into new light. James, 72 at the time, reached out to Russell Yates through a news article written by Shapiro and wrote, quote, We need to recognize postpartum depression with psychosis earlier and successfully treat it. We must do whatever we can to prevent another mother killing her children, unquote. James followed the Yates case and was disappointed with the outcome of Andrea being charged with murder, but is pleased with the treatment that she has received. In in correlation with 
that case, we will cover the Andrew Yates case because of the fact that it's it's just so close. Like, I'm so sorry. You can't talk about this case without thinking about Andrea Yates. Who? Andrea Yates was born in Hallsville, Texas, and she was the youngest of five children. She suffered from bulimia during her teenage years. She also suffered from depression, and at the age of 17, she spoke to a friend about suicide. She graduated from Milby High School in 1982 and was the class valedictorian, captain of the swim team, and an officer on the National Honor Society. Yates completed a two-year pre-nursing program at the University of Houston and graduated from the University of Texas School of Nursing with her bachelor's. From 1986 until 1994, she worked as a registered nurse at the University of Texas. In summer of 1989, she met Russell Yates, two months her junior, at the apartment she was living in in Houston. She was into him, he was into her, so they started dating soon after, and shortly after that, they were introduced to Michael Warnecke. Uh, he basically ran his own church ministry, if you want to call it that. He's kind of significant and kind of not. He comes up later, but it's kind of like he's clout chasing with the media. And she's kind of into what he's talking about. He's got like these absurd ideas of Christianity. But you you can believe what you want. It's a free it's a free country. He spoke in public events, but like he was crazy with it, and the whole family was involved. And they traveled the world, you know, spreading their own Christian beliefs. Russell and Andrea soon moved in together in nineteen ninety two and they were married April seventeenth, nineteen ninety three. They announced that they would seek to have as many babies as nature allowed and bought a four-bedroom house in Friendswood, Texas. Their first child, Noah, was born in February 1994, just before Rusty accepted a job offer in Florida. So they relocated to a small trailer in Seminole, Florida. December 1995, their second child, John, is born, and by the time of the birth of their third child, Paul, Rusty is adamant about Andrea staying at home and him do all the work. They moved back to Houston in 1997 and purchased a 350 square foot GMC motorhome. This is where the Warneckies come back into play because they sold them the motorhome. The Warneckies advised Rusty that he was working too much and advised that he cut back on his worldly possessions. So shortly after that they move into a bus with three kids. That would drive anyone crazy. Following the birth of her fourth child, Luke, Yates became depressed. She was breastfeeding, she was not sleeping, and she was alone most of the time. On June 16, 1999, she's found shaking and chewing on her fingers, like her actual fingers, until they were bleeding. She calls Rusty and tells him to come home. He gets there and he doesn't know what to do, so he takes her for a walk. The next day, she attempts to commit suicide by overdosing on pills. She was admitted to the hospital and prescribed antidepressants and diagnosed with major depression. Soon after her release, she stopped taking her medication. She begged Rusty to let her die as she held a knife up to her neck twice in one week. She wasn't feeding the kids because she felt like they were eating too much. 
And she also thought that cameras were in their ceilings and people on the TV were talking to her. Once again hospitalized, she avoided shock treatment and she was given a cocktail of medications including Haldol and another drug called Zyprexa, both antipsychotic drugs. The two big ones have serious side effects like permanent twitching, so she was taking drugs for taking drugs at this point. This gave the dead look on her face, like when she was depicted to the media. She finally found a balance and then things began to improve rapidly. Her condition improved so fast that she was released actually. After that, Rusty moved the family into a small house for the sake of her health. In July 1999, Yates suffered a nervous breakdown which culminated in two suicide attempts and two psychiatric hospitalizations that summer. She was diagnosed with postpartum psychosis. In August, she requested off all of her medications. Yates's first psychiatrist, Dr. Elaine Starbranch, testified that she urged her and Rusty not to have any more children as it would guarantee future psychotic depression. They conceived their fifth and final child approximately seven weeks after her discharge. She stopped taking her Haldol in March 2000 and gave birth to her daughter Mary on November 30, 2000. She seemed to be coping well until the death of her father on March 12, 2001. Yates then stopped taking medication, started back self-mutilating, and read the Bible feverishly. She wouldn't eat, she wouldn't sleep, she was hallucinating. She stopped feeding Mary, she began to pick at her scalp until she bled. She became so incapacitated that she required immediate hospitalization. On April 1, 2001, she came under the care of Dr. Mohammed Sahib. She was treated medically poorly and then released. Doc put her on all kinds of drugs once again, some drugs she had already been on previously and they didn't work. On May 3, 2001, she degenerated back into a near catatonic state and filled the tub in the middle of the day. She would later confess to police that she had planned to drown the children that day, but decided against doing it then. She was hospitalized the next day after a scheduled doctor visit. Her psychiatrist determined that she was probably suicidal and had filled the tub to drown herself. The one thing Dr. Zaid did do right was instruct Rusty not to leave her unsupervised, so on June 20, 2001, when Rusty went to work, his mother was supposed to be at the house one hour later. After calling the police, she then calls her husband, Rusty, and requests that he come home. He replies, is anyone hurt? And she says, yes. And then he says, how many? And she says, all of them. Two officers arrive and ask what's wrong, and this is when she admits that she has drowned all five of her children. Like, WTF? Anyone? Rusty arrives shortly after, and he's fucking devastated. He's like running from window to window looking for her, but she has to be taken out the back door so he doesn't see her, and she's taken to the police station in downtown Houston. She confesses to investigators that she has drowned all five of her children in the bathtub. 
She starts with Paul, age three and a half, then Luke, age two, moves to John, age five and a half, and then laid them all in her bedroom. Then she moves on to Mary, age six months, and then she leaves Mary in the tub to retrieve Noah, age seven. Noah discovers Mary's body in the tub, and then he attempts to run, but is caught and soon drowned, also in the same tub. Noah and Mary are taken out of the tub, placed in their bed, and Andrea puts Mary in John's arms. She is completely fucking insane. Like, her voicing the interrogation is like, she's talking about a normal day. She's not crying, she's not remorseful. She sounds tired. She looks tired. I feel like if they had a commercial for postpartum depression, Andrea would be what it looks like. In a press conference, Rusty is sympathetic for Andrea, stating that she wasn't in her right mind and this incident was a psychotic side effect from her depression. After the murders, Andrea is placed on antidepressants and antipsychotic medicines and underwent a shit ton of psychiatric tests. When she started coming back to reality, she started opening up, telling psychiatrists why she did it. February 2002, the trial starts and expert witness and psychiatrist Park Deet says that she got the idea from Law & Order, the TV show. In response to the claims, the show says that the episode in question never made it to TV. She pleads not guilty by reasons of insanity. Texas law states that in order to get the insanity defense, the defendant must prove that he or she could not tell right from wrong at the time of the crime. So... Three counts of capital murder later, for the drowning of Noah, John, and Mary, she is sentenced to life with the eligibility for parole in 40 years. For the next two years, she's put on suicide watch twice for not eating. Her attorney, George Parnum, files for her appeal while Rusty is getting uh, a divorce. So six months later, her case is reversed, and three months later, March 2005, the divorce is finalized. January 9th, 2006, Andrea Yates pleads not guilty by reasons of insanity again and goes to Rusk, Rusk State Hospital for psychiatric treatment. By June of that year, Andrea Yates' retrial kicks up 
and she gets the insanity plea and is ordered to a mental hospital. Six months later, she's transferred to Kerrville State Hospital in Texas, and that's where she's been since. So both women were on serious, serious drugs. Um, we don't know what drugs Maggie took, but Andrea was taking drugs for taking drugs at this point. Both made phone calls immediately after the crime, basically admitting guilt. So they knew they did something bad. And what's weird is they both chose the bathtub method. Some differences are Yates was placed on suicide watch several times while Maggie was not placed on suicide watch after, you know, seeming like she was getting better. Andrea also homeschooled and Maggie, it was, I'm led to believe that Maggie did the public school system because her oldest son was in school. So there, there's a couple differences there. Um, both the both husbands in the stories, uh, they they're away from home, and they were both probably encouraged to not leave these women with the children alone. And both husbands made efforts to not have the children left at home with the mother, if you want to call them that. So, if you if you hear any other similarities, don't be a stranger. You can find us on Instagram at Blood and Firewater Podcast, Twitter at BFW Pod Squad, and Facebook at Blood and Firewater Podcast. So, some good news of uh, to clear the air of all this murderer murdery stuff. It's my birthday month, and my birthday's on Thanksgiving this year. So, if you like the show, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, you don't have to say anything. You can just hit the five stars and be done with it. Uh, if you want to reach out to me and, you know, maybe start a discussion, you can also reach out to me on, at our email at bloodandfirewater at gmail.com. Stay alert and stay alive.